With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by Bombas. Bombas are athletic leisure socks re-engineered to look better, feel better, and perform better with a mission to help those in need. One pair purchased equals one pair donated. Go to bombas.com slash hang and get a free pair with your order or 20% off. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash hang. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of January 12th, 2015. On this week's show, we will talk about the divisional round of the NFL playoffs, which centered on such existential questions as, what is a catch? And who is Peyton Manning, really? We'll also be joined by ESPN's Tom Haberstroh to talk about strange times in the NBA's Eastern Conference, where the Atlanta Hawks have the best record, and the Detroit Pistons have won eight of nine games, after dumping the very highly paid Josh Smith. Andrew Basharat will be here to explain what's going on in Yosemite, where a pair of climbers are attempting the first free ascent of El Capitan's Don Wall. And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll discuss the miserable and also kind of hilarious state of the 5-35 and 35 New York Knicks, and the New York Times' decision to pull their writer off the beat to give him, quote, a break from such woeful basketball. Joining me in Washington, D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. With us from New York is Mike Pesca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. Hello, Mike. I disagree with the Times assessment. I mean, half the teams playing each night are playing a splendid brand of basketball, unimpeded by the other team's defense or ability to score. <laughs> what better the, show? What better show? Plus segment, Mike. 
That's the kind of insight that I wanted slate to give members are paying li- for. Mm-hmm. I wanted to give everyone a taste to wet their <laughs> beak on my plus knowledge, but it'll end there. <laughs> Everything else is behind a firewall, a firewall of intellect. You'll get such X-rated content as wet your beak on my plus knowledge in the uh, in the member segment. So I, for the first time ever, was on a frozen body of water on my two feet this weekend. The canal what? the canal froze over in D.C., which happens sometimes, although less often than it used to, given the warmer state of our planet. And for people who grew up in the northern part of the country, this might not be that. Uh, interesting of an event, but it felt, it felt very Rockwellian to me. There were like people out skating along. I, on the other hand, was wearing tennis shoes, but was enlisted into a three-on-three ice hockey game as mm. the guy in shoes, which made me think, you know the expression, like a guy is out there on roller skates? Yeah. It was actually the sensation of being the guy who didn't have skates on. Very similar to being the only person Mm -hmm. who has skates on, just being the outlier. There are just lots of people skating around me while I kind of just like stuck a stick out (laughs) occasionally. You didn't move very much because it's dangerous to move in tennis shoes. I tried to run. I tried to run back and forth a little bit, but it was it was futile. But I made a very good obstacle for the other players. So you were like you were like a human. It was sort of like being a tree in the school play. Traffic cone. I was a traffic cone, a human traffic cone. The idiom should be like a New Orleanian on a frozen canal. Oh, he was moving like a New Orleanian on a frozen canal. In tennis shoes. Yeah. That was I say sneakers. I think maybe if you say tennis shoes, you're even worse. On That's why I said it. Water. Yeah. 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 How, wait, you've been ice skating, though, on an ice rink. One time. One time? Yeah. When wow. would I have had the opportunity to do this? I mean, I guess I've lived up know. here for a while. <laughs> But what, if you've Folks, never they have this thing called <laughs> indoor rinks everywhere, but if, there was not there was not such a thing in New Orleans. And if you're not really? on no, and if you're not on skates for the first like twenty two to twenty eight years, years of, of your, your life, life, you kind of oh. all right. It, you, it's you, kind of hard to learn. You didn't go to Brown until you were twenty two. Yeah, I guess they well, had a nice rink there. Look, I had, it was I haven't been on skates. I don't know what to like, tell you. Much like a dangerous playing surface, we are poking holes in your theory. <laughs> You're not going to get me to confess that I have in fact been on skates, but I don't know if I have a good reason for it. Um, if but yet your nickname was Skates, although that was a tribute to Ronaldo <laughs> Nehemiah. Skates. <laughs> um, does this already count as whimsy? Watch so. In the Ravens Pats game, Dan Randleman pointed out on Twitter that a referee fell over. <laughs> there was more Andrew Luck complimenting defenders. Did we catch that? I think they mentioned it. It was mentioned, but only because it's gone viral. No, whimsy, whimsy it's watch. It's got to be. This. this is whimsy watch. New York bozo. That's whimsy watch. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do, yeah. yeah. That was Aaron Rodgers' audible call. Yeah. After the game, he said it didn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Maybe it just meant to amuse the, the fans at home. If that's the case, definitely whimsy, whimsy watch. watch. If it was only for amusement. Maybe it was a reference and to if it wasn't spontaneous? the tri-state area uh, bozo Chris Christie. Was it, was, it, reference. was it spontaneous? Is he, was he implying that it was spontaneous, New York bozo, or was it part of the signal call? He says our guys don't know what it means either. Nobody knew what it meant. It didn't obviously mean anything. He, Why would you possibly call the governor of New Jersey a New York bozo? <laughs> also, Aaron Rodgers supported defunding the arc tunnel, so I think he likes Christie. Maybe... Maybe that's what Aaron Rodgers wants you to think, that he wasn't referring to Chris Christie. It's like a psyops move. Also, um, Julie Kersen pointed out on our Facebook page, Cam Chancellor hurtling the uh, line to try to block a field goal twice. That was my favorite moment 
of the weekend. That was whimsical. Like it made uh, just a regular field goal attempt. It in- injected a certain frisson that is usually lacking. They should make a rule. They're talking about narrowing the goalposts, whatever. They should require one defensive player to try to leap over the line. Or they should play. put a little trampoline behind the defensive line, sort of like what the gorilla uses in Phoenix to dunk a basketball. I just had this great idea. I think I think audible should be assigned to every quarterback remaining in the playoffs based on a Republican potential presidential nominee. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mormon retread! Mormon retread! Arkansas fat man! Arkansas fat man! Nepotistic has been on two! Great audibles. I look forward to seeing those uh, this coming weekend. But you know who will not be audibling? Tony Romo. The man will, will audible no more. On fourth down... Late in the Green Bay-Dallas game, uh, Des Bryant of the Cowboys leaped in there to catch a pass from Romo. He landed at the Packers' one-yard line. Uh, I did say catch. I would like to use another word besides catch there, but it is hard to come up with another word. The NFL needs to create a word for what happened. It was was a catch-like substance, a catch-like process. He did not complete the process, the full process, according to referee Gene (laughs) Steratore, because the ball became dislodged as he went to the ground before Brian could perform an act common to the game, also known as a football move, a gridiron gesture, a pigskin thing. Uh, Stan thing. <laughs> this is known as the Calvin Johnson rule after a play in 2010 when Calvin Johnson caught a pass and it was ruled that it wasn't a catch because of that whole going to the ground football move thing. The consensus out in the world seems to be that this is a bad rule that was applied correctly by uh, the refs. Um, What do you think, Pesca? I think that the NFL uses extra verbiage and extra words when the perfectly good word, like catch, they want to try to define as not applying. You can take out the I think and just say the NFL uses. After After the game... Des Bryant chewed his meal, but a little bit dribbled out of the corner of his mouth. And then said, no, nope, no, nope, not a chew. Doesn't count as nutrition. Yeah, so I guess I, it's, it is good to have Mike Pereira there to tell us that this injustice is actually justice. And it wasn't fair. And what a an injustice from a common sense point of view. It was tuck rule level injustice, I think. Like, that's in the rule book? That seems freaking weird. Although the tuck rule was a eventually and essentially upheld and people just were told this is what it means i guess people know what a catch is but so it does seem that i understand what a football move is and i understand controlling it while you go to the ground but he controlled it part of the way in the ground on the ground he just has to control it all the way through the ground it seems like there's a higher standard of catches that go to the ground as opposed to catches that are made without going to the ground and why should that be i don't understand that well, it's his fault for going to the ground in the first place. So um, the win probability went from 56% for Dallas. If that had been ruled a completed catch on the one-yard line, Dallas down by five with around four minutes to go, to 81% for Green Bay. So I guess that was a 37% um, shift from 56% for Dallas to 19% for Dallas. Stefan, one argument that I've seen out there is that, yes, this is a bad rule, but, you know, it's really hard to formulate a different one when you actually have the task of putting in words in the rule book. It's easy to mock the NFL for having all this verbiage, but how else do you define a catch if not this way? I don't know. And that's the problem, right? The problem is that you can clearly see he catches the ball, he controls the ball, and when he hits the ground, it comes out of his hands. 
So the NFL has to define this one way or another. And if the other way is catches the ball, maintains possession as he's falling, then it becomes a judgment call. So if you if you apply that standard, then what do you do? Then you go to what we were talking about last week on the show, which is maybe every play should be reviewable, that everything should be challengeable, or maybe everything should just be reviewable if the refs decide to make it reviewable, because it's a complicated game that is played at incredibly high speeds, that involves judgments that occur in milliseconds by athletes. I mean, one of the arguments that was being made on the postgame show and Michael Strahan made it, was that, well, what he should have done, what Des Bryant should have done, was just tuck the ball in his arms and fall to the ground, as if in that, you know, microsecond, he would have had the wherewithal to think, well, maybe should I try to score a touchdown? Because I really can't tell whether I'm a yard from the goal line or (laughs) six inches from the goal line, because I've just made one of the most acrobatic, incredible catches in the NFL this year. So, you know, he's operating on instinct. So what's the instinct? The instinct is to catch the ball, reach out, and try to score. Well, but I, the rule says that that didn't count as a football move. So it's got to be defined one way. This doesn't seem like a terrible way to define it for me because, yeah, the ball, the, the, he lost control of the ball because he hit the ground when he hit the ground. I came away from this with the exact opposite feeling. It's that, like, we all are watching on TV. We perceive it to be a catch the referee the whatever line judge who's standing right there rules it a catch and then you actually literally have the announcers praising mike mccarthy for making a great challenge and then oh, I'm not all the focus all the focus goes away from the catch onto the coach for making a great challenge like the coach is the hero the game. yeah and right. what the and, and what the, the NFL wants, which is it to be an exercise in forensic videography. I mean, that's the correct. ultimate thing for the NFL that so, the NFL wants. So Peter King, um, who is as plugged into the conventional wisdom of the league as anyone, reports this morning that this gets discussed every offseason. And what the competition committee always comes back to is, OK, we can define a catch as just um, receiver gets two feet down and possesses the ball, which as Bryant did. And then whatever happens after that happens. But then, you know, there's concern trolling about what King refers to as the cheap fumble. So Bryant catches the ball, has two feet down, and then like immediately fumbles the ball after that. And then you get into another like kind of question of microseconds of like, how long do you have to have the ball? Like there's not going to be any way to define it. So it's satisfying to everyone. But we know for a fact that this is unsatisfying. And so it seems like it's worth looking at and maybe trying to move to the two feet down with the ball standard. So I think what we'd want to move to is a standard that that you're suggesting, Josh, which is we want to reward the great athletic play. We want to reward the great sports act. Right. We don't want to reward the coach who's aware of the stupid rule and knows how to apply it correctly. You know, this is, I think there's an interesting opportunity for someone who's at the intersection of football or f- football rulemaking and jurisprudence, because it seems like the Supreme Court has this choice too. American legal systems, justice, questions of justice often hinge on how clear do you want to make the law. And it might be frustrating to an outsider when the standards before the Supreme Court are things like, you know, clear and compelling. Well, what does that mean? And burden of proof and unusual punishment. But the reason 
reason that they have these wiggle phrases is not so that justice doesn't get applied and not so it's not applied evenly. It's to allow for justice to get applied. Now, it doesn't seem like football would ever embrace that, but why not? You know, I wouldn't be not just because it's a huge game, but I would not be annoyed if the ruling was it is a catch because like we all know what a catch is and that's (laughs) a catch. And you could write that into the rule in a way with sort of vague phrases like you could say football move and you could say controlling it, but there could be a um, supra rule which says, however, if in the judgment of the on field and booth officials that this constitutes what is commonly thought of as a catch, then it shall be deemed a catch henceforth. Well, we know the NFL would never do that because you saw like last week with the Lions-Cowboys game and the perception that the league was favoring the Cowboys. So I think for the league's sake, they want the deniability of having a bright line rule, even in situations where a bright line is just impossible to create. And I don't even think it's for reasons of deniability alone. I think it's also just how the brains of the people that work at the NFL for a long time function. They function with the belief that Everything has to be micromanaged, that this is a league that thrives on specificity. They make a lot of football moves. It's lower. It's literally lower order thinking. And there is like a cap to how I understand it's sports. Maybe you don't want things like evaluation and synthesis or whatever is on top of those pyramids, but it's just lower order thinking. And you can't get higher in the world of the NFL, especially. Whereas like baseball, maybe you can. Bulls and strikes, wiggle yeah. room. That's cool. I mean, there the NFL has always been about <laughs> trying to eliminate as much spontaneity as possible, whether it's in the celebrations of the athletes or in their minute movements on the field. And it, this just falls into the nature of the sport how it's played, and how it's adjudged. So there was another debate about fairness in a game over the weekend, and that was in the Patriots-Ravens game where John Harbaugh, the Ravens coach, complained (laughs) after the game about a series of three plays that the Patriots ran in which they took a running back and lined him up as a lineman, as an ineligible receiver. It was some formational trickery within the rules, as explained by NFL apparatchik Dean Blandino, who has a fantastic name for an NFL apparatchik. Harbaugh was complaining, essentially, that they weren't given enough time to adjust because this is something that had not been seen before. They didn't have a chance to identify, okay, this is a guy who's on the line of scrimmage. This is a guy who's off the line of scrimmage. Um, It seemed to me like totally fair play, and it was key to the Patriots' comeback from, you know, 14 points down twice. Did you have, Mike, did you have any thoughts on um, the Patriots' strategy there? Yeah, I think it was uh, Belichickian and smart. And explain why it was a complaint with an ethical dimension to me again. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if it had an ethical dimension. I think it was a complaint about whether the rules were applied correctly because um, you know how the referee stands over the ball if there are substitutions made to give the defense a chance to line up. The to defense match up. has the opportunity to make the final substitution, yes. correct? So the referee in this in this game announced like Shane Vereen, whatever his number is, is an ineligible receiver. 34. And then, according to Harbaugh, the Patriots just like rush out of the huddle, like line up, and they don't get a chance to actually see where the different guys are lined up, they're all confused. So it's, I guess, a question of what matching up means. What is oh, a catch? See, well, the, to me, what I is mean, to matching me, up? Once you allege what are decep- rules? Once you allege deception, that to me seems to have an ethical dimension, and it just seems to be Harbaugh was outsmarted and yelled about it. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And Jason Garrett, after the game, did the very magnanimous thing, or at least the thing that will get you praised for being magnanimous, mm-hmm. is saying, like, I didn't agree with the call, but the game wasn't decided by a single play. It kind of was. <laughs> really? <laughs> that, Amendola, like that that uh that uh Edelman to Amendola toss and catch seemed to be pretty big. <laughs> Brandon LaFell, if he dropped the ball, that would have been big. <laughs> the game is always decided by a single play. Yeah, every one every game that ends by 8 points or fewer literally is decided by a single play. You can't say that that's not and true. And I will t- I will tell the coach after each game what that play was and then he will have to come up with a explanation for whether yeah. That play was f- just or unjust. The Brady, but the I can Brady. only hope that the NFL looks, takes this seriously, reviews the tapes, and then promptly <laughs> destroys them. <laughs> the Brady to Edelman to Amendola play had to be the most Patriots play in the history of Patriots plays. Explain. Three quarterbacks, basically. I mean, Amendola, I guess. Did oh, let's call him a quarterback. I bet he played quarterback at some level. He must have played quarterback How at some level. He's the, probably like played catch before. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. An out-of-position guy. Making his career out of position, Julian Edelman. And, uh, you know, it was just a very Patriots play. But also, I think that they were right in saying they've been holding on to this one for years. Like, Edelman was a former quarterback, never attempted a pass. In the All NFL, right, well, I was surprised by that. Yeah. Yeah. That happened at LSU. They had this guy, Russell Shepard, who was an all star high school quarterback. And every game for his entire <laughs> career was like, this is the game where this guy's going to throw a pass. Never threw a pass. <laughs> <laughs> the genius of Les Miles. They were always expecting it, and he just never did it. Speaking of did the NFL... Have... Go ahead. Did anyone have tape of him throwing? Like, could he actually throw the ball? There are all these, like, high school tapes, unless it was, like, a different guy. Yeah, yeah. Like, who, who am I to say whether it was actually him? Now, in the, in the vein of the NFL's Uber control... Um, I think two things happened during the games over the weekend that bear mentioning. And one is Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth doing that incredible play acting. The Mueller report showed that the NFL, we are being controlled by Roger Goodell. (laughs) Yeah, it definitely seemed like people were like holding guns to their heads, asking them to say that it showed that the league office didn't have the Ray Rice tape and that nobody what did Collinsworth say? Nobody has ever questioned Roger Goodell's integrity. Integrity. Yeah, nobody's ever done that. <laughs> yeah. And and then the, the second the second one was the fact that they didn't show any shots of Jerry Jones and Chris Christie during the Cowboys Packers game. Which again points out the the level of the, the control freak level that the NFL feels necessary in the staging of their games. And and I think any sentient viewer looks at that and thinks, boy, the NFL, what, like, how transparent do they think we are? Well, they think that, you know, we're incredibly stupid, the audience, which is why they would have Al Michaels read that incredibly long press release, um, not thinking that anyone would question it or not caring that anyone would question it or thinking that 98% of the 35 million people that are watching that game are not going to question it and the other 5%, well, who cares about those people? They don't like us anyway. Pesco, what did you think of the Mueller report, which came out last week and did absolve the NFL of having seen the in elevator Ray Rice video? You know, they examined all of Roger Goodell's cell phone records and email <laughs> records. You know, refuted oh, yeah. refuted the AP report that that 
somebody in the NFL office had acknowledged receipt of it. And how they did that was amazing in that they got the date that the AP reported the call happened. They logged every single call that went into and out of the NFL. They called every single person, including the report said many local restaurants. And they determined <laughs> that none of those people were, they made, I think, I think there were like well over a thousand calls in and out and somewhere duplicates so they made 900 calls to track it which was i guess you know touted as a triumph of how hard the Mueller report worked and to that extent it was except my god working for the nfl must suck i hope they pay these secretaries tons of money so that someone could come in and retrace every call that you make whatever to your psychologist to your endocrinologist doesn't matter to your dying mom I think the Mueller report was it was this weird thing where the word you used was absolved, right? It, they, as much as we, we all talk about how that was this false choice that if Goodell had really seen the tape like the AP reported, he'd be out. But of course, it's much more indicting that he didn't really go through any effort to ask. And as the Mueller report showed, the Ravens had it. Revel Casino had it. They never asked Revel. They never asked the Ravens. They were incurious and imperious. And, and Deadspin did a nice terrible. breakdown of one of the NFL's investigators. You know, it's a retired cop who basically punted. I mean, he barely did anything um, during the course of this. Well, he's monitoring developments in the case, which meant that he was, you know, reading the, the Trentonian to see yeah. what was going on. But they were because they were only relying on police sources. So they were also criticized for, you know, not going to the casino itself, not going mm -hmm. to the team, not going to the lawyers. And the Mueller report doesn't come out and quite glaringly blast them for that. But it certainly paints a picture of ve it's very curious that they went through so little to actually see this tape that was seen by so many people. Right. But Other it, interesting note, the Inside Basketball message board had the details of this before any news organization did. Did you know that? I knew it after you told me. <laughs> Does that count? That was the Pasco report of the Mueller report. So we didn't get a chance to talk about Peyton Manning. We didn't talk about Seattle. It was a busy weekend for that. Andrew NFL. Luck. Andrew Luck. These are all interesting, important NFL things that we will talk about. Aaron Rodgers. At a date uh, in the future. Um, but today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, athletic leisure socks re-engineered to look better, feel better, and perform better. What do you need in a pair of socks, he asked rhetorically. You need them to cover your feet in some kind of material. You don't want them to have built-in sharp, pointy things that will hurt you. Um, Shards now, of glass would be bad. <laughs> that would be bad. Bombas do not have those. Um, what do you want in a pair of socks? You want them to come in a bunch of different colors, heather gray accented in lightning yellow, perhaps. You want them to have an extra layer of support and comfort that's not bulky or suffocating. You don't want an irritating seam on the toe. You want them to stay cool in the summer and warm in the winter, thanks to Peruvian Pima cotton. And you probably want to get a great deal and perhaps help other people in the process. Bombas meets all of those criteria, good sock-wanting people of Earth. Go to bombas.com slash hang, and you can get a free pair of these awesome socks with your order, or you can get 20% off on your order. Bombas also donates a pair of socks for each pair that you buy, so you can feel good about buying socks that feel good on your feet. Go to bombas.com slash hang and get yourself a pair, or buy some for someone you think deserves the best sock-wise. For each pair you buy, Bombas will donate socks to those in need. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash hang. 
All right, moving on to basketball, the Western Conference standings mostly make sense to the casual or not casual NBA fan. The top eight teams, Golden State, Portland, Houston, Memphis, Dallas, Clippers, San Antonio, Phoenix, these are all good teams. They have good players. Oklahoma City with Kevin Durant now back from injury is coming on fast. But the East is just weird. The Cavs have sunk to 500. They've lost five in a row with LeBron James out. They have been passed by the Milwaukee Bucks who finished 15 and 67 last year. Um, then they got a great star uh, rookie draft pick, Jabari Parker. He tore his ACL. Um, and their highest paid player, Larry Sanders, is rumored to not want to play basketball anymore. This team has a better record than the Cavs. At the top of the Eastern standings are Atlanta and Toronto, followed by the Chicago Bulls. Makes sense. And the Washington Wizards. The hottest team in the conference is the Detroit Pistons, who have won 8 of 9 after starting 5 and 23, the turning point being their decision to dump their highest paid player, Josh Smith, and get absolutely nothing in return, no draft picks, no players, no nothing, just $14 million out the door. Joining us to explain or try to explain what is going on here is Tom Haberstroh, who writes about basketball for ESPN.com. Welcome, Tom. What's up, guys? What is up is that I am confused about the Eastern Conference and hoping that you can explain it to me. Um, Let's start with the Hawks. They gave the Pacers a scare in the first round of the playoffs last year, but they finished the regular season 38 and 44. Uh, This year, they're kind of closing in on 38 already. They're 29 and 8. They're led by Jeff Teague, Paul Millsap, Al Horford, and Kyle Korver. Korver is shooting 52.4% on threes, which would be second best all time behind Kyle Korver of five years ago. Um, the Hawks coach is Mike Buddenholzer, who spent 18 seasons with San Antonio uh, before going to Atlanta. Um, people have started calling the Hawks Spurs East. Is it that simple, Tom? Or are they just like playing Spurs basketball and that's good enough to be the best team in the Eastern Conference? Well, it's, what's funny is I was on air the other day at ESPN and I made the joke and it's kind of relevant right now. It's like people call this team Spurs East, but I think we should be calling the Spurs Hawks West. Like, that's how good they're playing. It's, it's kind of crazy when you look at it. I mean, they're 22-2 and two since Thanksgiving. 22-2 and two since Thanksgiving. I mean, you know, Daryl Morey, the GM of the Houston Rockets, just hit me up on Twitter and said, you know, this is one of the best streaks he's ever seen or one of the best stretches of basketball he's ever seen, most, most surprising, I should say. And, and how are they doing it? They're doing it because of spacing. And this is the era of spacing. It's, you know, we have all these sport view cameras. Are, that, that's watching every movement on the court. They're basically tracking every player, the ball, uh, in XY coordinates. And we're getting a lot smarter about the effect of, of, um, of spacing. And we have five guys who can shoot the rock on the floor at all times for the Atlanta Hawks. Every time they play, they got five shooters. And even Al Horford, who is more like, he's like Chris Bosch or Dirk Nowitzki as like a mid-range assassin. He is unbelievably efficient in the mid-range. But they've asked him to step behind the three-point line. So now they have five guys on the floor, along with Harold Antich, as you saw in the playoffs last year, who can shoot threes. And they're basically saying is that this is a market inefficiency. Every player on the floor that, that comes out for the Atlanta Hawks is going to shoot the rock. And you have Kyle Korver, who's automatic. He's unbelievable. You have Paul Millsap, who's a power forward, uh, shooting 33% from the floor. He has 99 threes on the season. But the spacing, the defense just has no idea how to cover these guys. Because as soon as they get behind the arc, they're an option to shoot. And you're seeing it with Detroit. Like, 
when Josh Smith left, suddenly it was so much harder to defend because they had so many more shooters out there. So they're, they're definitely um, surprising everyone in the league. They just, no one knows how to guard them. I'll also throw out a Spurs East Hawks West complication, not a complication, confirmation. Without Tim Duncan, how good were the Spurs? Would the Spurs be? I mean, Tim Duncan, his presence, but you know, especially when he was in his prime, made uh, the Spurs and um, their coach seem like a genius. And it's pretty similar with Al Horford. When Horford was hurt last year, they were a bad team. Now that he's there, he just gives them. He's much more than just the most important player. He's sort of the cog that makes the whole team work. I think. Yeah, he's so talented, and people don't realize because he plays in Atlanta, but the guy is so skilled. There's only a few, like a handful of bigs in the NBA can go coast to coast, grab a rebound, dribble down the floor, make a great pass, or finish at the rim. There's just not a lot of guys who can do that. Um, and Al Horford is basically, you know, a three in a five body. And so he's so skilled, so talented, he can shoot, he can pass, he can dribble, um, and he plays great defense. I mean, when. People don't realize, and we, I just talked last poetically about their offense, and they're a machine offensively, yes. But defensively, they have the number one defense in the last 20 games. So they're, they're so good defensively because they're long. I mean, Paul Millsap, uh, he's top 10 in steals, and he's a power forward. You just don't see that. Uh, he's got extremely long arms for his size. He plays hard. Same with Cal Corver. I talked with Dwayne Wade a few weeks ago about this. People think that because of what Kyle Corver looks like, he's not a good defender. He's really long. He's really long for a shooting guard, and it's hard for guys to you know make passes when they have all that length with Amari Carroll. Um, Al Horford's not tall, but he's really smart on the on the blocks there. So they've got a lot of talent um, offensively, but defensively, the story for me is that they just no one can score on them, and it's really weird because they don't have that. You know, Tim Duncan, Roy Hibbert type, but they really defend collectively really well. And the thing is, guys, when we talk about the Hawks, they're not just taking advantage of the mess in the East. There's a lot of turnover in the East. You know, as we talked about, the Milwaukee Bucks are up there, but they're not just feasting on the East teams. They've beaten the Blazers, Clippers, Mavs, Grizzlies, Rockets, Pelicans. They can basically every Western Conference powerhouse, you know, with the exception of the Golden State Warriors, they haven't played yet. They've beaten them. And so this is, this is a legit, title contending team if they can keep these guys healthy um they're not just you know the best in the east they, they, they're up there with the best in the entire NBA. you know what what comes to my mind is why this wasn't predictable or why nobody really saw this coming in other sports you know you get a kansas city royals and and it's like surprise and the surprise team and the darling cinderella team in basketball we tend to sort of know what's going to happen at the beginning of the season we have a fairly good uh, understanding of the composition and the abilities of teams and how they match up in their particular conferences. When a team comes out of nowhere, it always strikes me as completely confounding. Like, why didn't we know Atlanta was going to be this good? Yeah, it makes me look bad because it's my job to predict these things. <laughs> like, it's one thing to just be like, oh, that's a great story. Like, who, who saw that coming? Well, our job in the NBA is to be the smartest guys in the room and say, ha, I told you about the Hawks. And the thing about the Hawks and we'll talk about the Pistons, too, but the Hawks, the off-season stuff with Danny Ferry and Bruce Levinson, um, the whole mess upstairs kind of clouded over the team. So no one was really talking about the fact that Al Horford wasn't playing last year, and they were still a pretty good team that scared the, uh, the Pacers, um, brought them to seven games, and the Pacers almost knocked off the heat. So you're talking about a team that was actually pretty good last year with Al Horford, and the thing is, I, I thought the bench was going to be worse this year, but Dennis Schroeder, this guy, he's a German, basically a rookie 
considering how old he is, he's uh, probably one of the most improved players in the NBA. They call him Baby Rondo. He looks exactly like Rondo, plays like Rondo, and he's such a quick guard, and he was one of the worst NBA players last year, one of the worst. One of the worst players couldn't play him last year, and he's improved so dramatically that he's one of the best backup point guards in the NBA. He'd help a lot of teams if he started for them. So you got Pablo Cephalosha, uh, Pero Antic is a a bombing big three or a big uh, bombing three big man who just no one knows. Uh, there's no one like him in the NBA, and you, you just they have a depth, they have talent, and they have no one, no one in the top 50 in field goal attempts per game. They share the ball better than any other team in the NBA, even the Spurs. Um, and it's just a pleasure to watch. And unfortunately, not many people are are buying into it just because they play in Atlanta. It's a pleasure to watch, but the Atlanta media corps won't be watching them on the road. <laughs> yeah, they're yeah, not sending yeah, any they, uh, beat reporters out to to cover the team. And they, that, being, they being the Atlanta Constitution. Yeah, or any Atlanta media outlets. So um, if the Hawks did win a title, which still seems like a bit of a long shot, they would be probably the first team since those Pistons teams of um, you know the mid-2000s to win without really having a star. Um, yeah. And this... Pistons team got rid of the guy that was supposed to be their star, Josh Smith, and have won eight of nine games. And it's kind of a similar story, right, Tom, that they're now able to space the floor. They're shooting a ridiculous number of three-pointers per game. And you have a column coming up on ESPN about how Stan Van Gundy, the first-year coach for the Pistons, is basically recreating his great Orlando Magic team that made the finals in uh, 2009. Yeah, uh, it's kind of amazing to watch. We're, we're all trying to like, scratch our heads watching the Detroit Pistons. How did they do it? They just they subtracted a guy and suddenly they're playing, uh, you know, elite basketball. It doesn't really happen all that often. And you know, Bill Simmons coined the Ewing theory, which is basically when the Knicks didn't have Patrick Ewing back in the day, they soared into the finals. And and so there's this coin of hey, if you lose a star and you play better, that's the Ewing. That's Patrick, that's Rudy Gay. And now we have the Josh Smith theory, right? So Josh Smith, never an all-star, but still, you know, soaked up a lot of possessions, really ugly basketball, where they pass it out to the perimeter, and he just would ball hog and take a really, really frustrating jumper, mid-range jumper, three points, or he had no business taking. And so what happened was the spacing was crunched. You had five guys hanging out in the paint when every time Josh Smith got the ball, and it just completely stagnated the offense. And now without him, they are absolutely killing teams offensively. They're scoring 109.7 points every 100 possessions, which is right up there with the very best in the league. And they're doing it because they're shooting threes. They're just bombing away threes. And Chuck Smith, not a good three-point shooter, one of the worst ever. And now they've got guys like Jonas Redko or Anthony Tolliver. All these, they're not household names, but they're shooting the rock. Jody Meek, they're shooting just like you know Stan Van Gundy's team did in 2009, when it went to the finals, they're actually shooting more threes than that finals team. And that finals team in 2009 led the NBA in three-point attempts. So this is an amazing transformation. Overnight, when you lose Josh Smith, suddenly everyone seems to know what kind of brand of basketball they want to play. And it's that magic brand of basketball that went to the finals. It's really amazing to watch. Stan Van Gundy's going to get a lot of credit for for changing the offense and, and getting rid of Josh Smith. 
But Stan Van Gundy also allowed Josh Smith to dominate the offense for the first the X games of the question. season. Yes. Like, why Why did that happen? And why should we be not criticizing Van Gundy for not recognizing it sooner or or having better control over his team? I know, right? And, and sometimes you just wonder if these guys are just unreachable. And maybe Stan Van Gundy tried every trick in his book to try to reach Josh Smith and say, look, you can't do this anymore. I'm not going to play you, or I'm not going to let this happen. I don't know why it didn't work out, but maybe it's just, you know, Josh Smith is saying to Stan, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm getting paid $11 million a year, whatever it is. Uh, I can do what I want. And at that point, I mean, the trust is gone, and whatever uh, Stan Van Gundy wanted to do with Josh Smith, if he doesn't want to listen, then there's not much he can do. So it is interesting, though. Um, he could have just, like, sent Josh Smith home and just said, don't be with the team, we'll trade you, stay at home, we're going to move on without you. And they could have gotten something in return for him. But Sam Magani said no. I mean, he's the president of basketball ops there. So not only is the coach, he has all veto power on any move. So he basically sent him home, uh, cut him, and got nothing back in return. And now he's looking really smart. But it does raise the question... Why didn't this happen sooner? How much stock, Tom, do you put into the argument that once you cut your floundering best player, you're lighting a fire under the other guys? The motivation argument here. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's tough. I mean, it seems like you know hindsight is twenty twenty a lot of the time. Um, but it really, a guy like Josh Smith is is really poisonous to a team because he's not efficient. He makes a ton of money, so it seems like. You know, he's a quote-unquote leader of the team, and so he can kind of kill the locker room that way. But we just never see, you know, a transformation like this. Um, and even with Kobe Bryant this year, they were so much better when he went to the bench. Um, but he was able, right now what you're seeing when he plays, he was able to kind of evolve his game into not you know, shooting every time he touched the ball, a contested mid-range jumper every time he touched the ball. But Josh Smith, you know, he, he just, I guess, uh, wasn't able to do that. He wasn't willing to evolve. So... Um, you know, no one's going to say they should cut Kobe Bryant, um, but these guys have to have a capacity to change. And if they don't, then maybe they do have to cut them. Um, but, you know, Josh Smith, I think what, what we're seeing in Detroit, part of the reason why it's so amazing to watch, because it's so rare. We just never see this happen. So it's, it's amazing to see. But I think it also has to do with human nature. And y- yeah. y- you get rid of this guy, and everybody else on the team suddenly is having fun. It's like, oh, we can play basketball. We can shoot three-point shots. We like doing that. And now we have the opportunity to do it. you got to hand it to Stan Van Gundy because you got to keep that locker room together to have that trust between Brandon Jennings and between Andre Drummond, who's just a monster, and to keep them focused because – it's it's a really young team, and they love playing basketball right now. Obviously, without Josh Smith, and uh, it's just you got to hand it to them. And this is an unbelievable stretch for them. So quickly, the story of this season really is um, you know the number of guys, star players in the league who've missed um, an, a huge amount of time. You made a list on ESPN guys that have missed more than five games to injury. It would take the entire rest of our podcast to list them all. But Kobe, LeBron, Kevin Durant, Carmelo Anthony, Russell Westbrook, Paul George, Dwight Howard, Chris Bosh, Dwayne Wade, um, Joakim Noah, Tony Parker, and so forth. Um, Is this finally going to scare Adam Silver in the league office into saying, like, you know, we don't want to give up the revenue of, like, 82 games in a year, but we also don't want to have all of this, like, dead money not playing and all of the most famous best players not on the court and fans having to watch these like shelves of teams basically. 
Yeah, and it's one thing for them to not play, and it's another to make noise about it. So before the season, Dirk Nowitzki and LeBron James, two of the biggest stars, one international, one you know American player, saying we need to play fewer games. And the reflexive reaction to a lot of people, the knee-jerk reaction is like, oh yeah, well where are they going to make up the money? Like next time you ask a player like do you want to play fewer games, ask them do you want to take a smaller paycheck? Because if you cut off the games, if you you know, kill 15 games off the, stre- the schedule, that's 15 games of revenue that they're losing. But I don't really think that's the case. I think there's some value in scarcity. And if you look at the NFL or you look at the NCAA March Madness tournament, I mean, in 11 broadcasts, Kevin Arnovitz at ESPN found this out, in 11 broadcast dates for March Madness, the NBA gets more revenue. I mean, the NCAA gets more revenue over those 11 broadcast dates than the NBA does for an, NBA, an entire NBA season. So, there is value in scarcity, and less is more. And I think they might not have less revenue. I think they might have more because these games matter. So uh, when the CBA comes around in 2017, this is going to be a hot-button issue. If uh, LeBron James, if the likes of LeBron James and Kobe Bryant and all these guys miss games because they're, they don't have enough rest in the schedule, it's going to be a big deal. But if you don't let all 29 other teams a chance to beat up the Sixers and the Knicks, it's not fair. <laughs> the Sixers have won two in a row. It's true. Actually, I'll leave you with this. I know we're running late here, but I'll leave you with this. The Knicks have had only one minute in the last 15 games where they've <laughs> held a lead greater than five points. So they've had one minute of basketball where they've had a lead greater than five points. It's insane. How Don't worry, they lost been. that game. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. The Knicks, the Knicks in the 76, I mean, we, we, we keep talking about these guys need rest, but every time they play those teams, it seems like they're getting rest the night off, right? Yeah. Thank you very much, Tom Haberstra. All right, guys. Take it easy. Thanks for having me on. I am pleased to announce a live event coming up in New York that you might be interested in. Um, you should join the writers and editors behind Outward, Slate's LGBTQ blog, for an evening of conversation about the latest gay news, culture, and controversy. It is happening Tuesday, February 3rd. City Winery in New York, uh, Slate's J. Brian Lauder, Mark Joseph Stern, and June Thomas will be there. And they will have a special guest, uh, actress Leah Delaria, who plays Big Boo on Orange is the New Black. And at the end of the evening, audience members will have an opportunity to pose their very own Ask a Homo question. That is Tuesday, February 3rd at City Winery in New York. We have done shows at that venue. It is a great one. Uh, for more information, you can go to slate.com slash outward NYC. As we tape the podcast this morning, climbers Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgensen have been hanging on what's known as the Don Wall of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park for 17 days. Caldwell and Jorgensen are trying to complete the first free ascent of the more than 3,000-foot-high Don Wall, what Caldwell recently called the steepest, blankest big wall in the world, and what the New York Times' John Branch called smooth as alabaster, as steep as the bedroom wall, more than a half mile tall. A free ascent is a climb that's free of aid, which our guest Andrew Bisharat will explain to us. In a recent piece for National Geographic, Andrew wrote that if Caldwell and Jorgensen are successful in free climbing the Don Wall, it will be one of the most significant climbing achievements of all time. Andrew is a writer and climber based in Colorado. He's been writing about the ascent, and he's been talking to the climbers as they make their way up. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Josh. Sure. Um, And let's start with the basics. Um, What are these climbers doing, and what is a free ascent? Well, 
A free ascent means free of aid. And what that really means is using your hands and feet to ascend only the natural features presented by the rock. So it's a differentiation from aid climbing where climbers would place a piece of gear, such as a piton, a bolt, or a cam, and they would hang on it and clip a nylon uh, ladder to that piece of gear and stand on that, place the next piece of gear, place another nylon ladder, uh, walk up the ladder, and continue up that way. So free climbing is a much more pure form of rock climbing. It's much more enjoyable, and it's much more challenging because you have to uh, basically just use the strength in uh, you know your physical in, in your hands and feet to climb the wall. And it's different from free soloing, which you don't have any rope at all. And if you did that and climb the Don Wall, you would die because when you fall, if you fall, there's no rope to catch you. And they fall, and they fall pretty regularly, right? Yeah, they fall all the time. So as as climbs get harder, as free climbs get harder, uh, you're exactly right. It's it's really just a matter of using ropes, using gear, but not weighting it and not using it to progress upward. And so the ropes and the the gear are there in, uh, to protect the climbers. The challenge is not just getting to the top of the wall. The challenge is to do all the moves as a free climb. And the, the, let's be clear that this isn't like these guys just looked up from the bottom of the Dawn Wall and said, let's give it a shot. This has been like seven years in the making, and every route is precisely mapped out. They've actually been up on the wall many, many times. Can you explain the process of preparing to tackle something like this? Sure, and and that's really what uh, makes this ascent so significant, is that it's taken Tommy Caldwell seven years just to put himself in a position where he might be successful. There's 11, there's about 100 routes on El Cap in total, and 12 of those, only 12 are free climbs, um, and Tommy has done 11 of them, and he's done them all pretty quickly. So the fact that this has taken him seven years first to find the route and then to actually uh, work on the moves and be able to free climb it is really speaks to the difficulty of this ascent. You know, typically on El Capitan, there are vertical cracks that are very obvious from the ground. And that typically has been where the majority of the free climbs are located. So you look up, you see a vertical crack. It runs from the bottom all the way to the top of the wall. What makes the Don Wall different is that it's it's one of the first routes that's really uh, broken away from the vertical crack systems and gone onto these completely blank spaces that look just impossible. But you know, over the years, as Tommy's gone on rappel, he's rappelled down the wall, he's, he's swung around, he's looked to find, oh, there's a little hold here, there's a foothold here. You know, and imagine doing this on a 3,000-foot cliff. He's been able to find a way to link moves up this wall that just looks completely impossible. And literally, how does he mark it? When he's done all that rappelling, how does he mark where the holds are and where the optimal route would be? Well, a lot of it is just memorization, and a lot of it involves, um, you know, establishing point the anchor points, which in this case are uh, bolts that he drills into the cliff. And he has to do this by hand because power drilling is illegal in national parks. But using a hand drill, which takes about 45 minutes just to place one bolt, you know, he's able to uh, establish these anchors in order to keep the climbing relatively safe. You know, it's still quite dangerous, but relatively safe so that if he falls, he's not going to die or really injure himself gravely. 
So the first two years of his process was really about putting in the bolts, you know, finding where the holds are. Sometimes they'll use little dabs of chalk called tick marks to indicate where, you know, footholds and handholds are, which, uh, you know, that'll typically wash away after one rainstorm. So it's still, you know, every time they go up there, it's still a matter of, oh, we have to remember where the holds are. But for for guys like Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgensen, a lot of it is, I mean, they're just so, such gifted climbers that even without all of all of that, they can, on, on some of the easier pitches, they can really, you know, just climb as if it's their first time on the wall. So following this, a couple questions. It seems like Caldwell, well, it doesn't seem, it's true that Caldwell is making better progress than Jorgensen. Jorgensen, I think, hurt himself more seriously. Is it possible that Caldwell will finish it and Jorgensen won't be able to join him? And also, I've been reading about the ratings of the difficulty, and it seems like 5.13 is a number that's thrown out there. But then from the point they're at now, it's all 5.12 or easier. What what do those numbers correlate to? Is that like the Richter scale? Like every one is is twice as difficult as the last, yeah. That is the... um, you know, that is what we call in climbing the Yosemite Decimal System. And what that uh, indicates is that it sort of grows out of this idea of rating hikes. So a Class 1 hike is just a flat walk. Class 3 hike is, you know, you have to start scrambling and use your hands. When you get to Class 5, that's, that's considered technical rock climbing, where you need ropes and equipment to safely ascend the, you know, so-called hike. So within this fifth class it's broken down by a decimal point system. So five, we would say, not instead of 5.12, we would say 5.12. So it's an open-ended system that begins at 5.1, goes up to 5.15C, which is the hardest climb in the world right now. And the climb, the the ratings of the hardest pitches on the Donwall are 5.14D, which is just a few notches below the very world standard. And the fact that these what, what, what pitches would be are coming, harder? What would be harder, Andrew, going Upside down? <laughs> well, certainly, yeah. The steeper it gets, the harder the climbing gets. You know, these. this is a very unique style of climbing because it's on a vertical wall. It involves very small holds, very precarious movements, a lot of balance, and uh, and just an, an incredible sense of your space and your body awareness on this vertical cliff. There are routes that are technically harder than the Dawn Wall, but none are as sustained or as long. And do you think that uh, Caldwell could do it without his partner? He's certainly in a position where he is, you know, poised to strike the, the summit. He could have been on top a few days ago, but he chose to give Kevin more time to catch up. He was battling some finger uh, skin tears. That was really stopping him at one pitch, pitch 15. I think you described it, or he described it as like grabbing razor blades. Certainly, yeah. It's it's that's uh, no exaggeration that some of these holds are as sharp as razor blades, and you know when you have to work on doing the moves and you're doing it over and over and you're continuing to grab these these really sharp uh, blades of rock, of course that you know leaves some damage in your skin. But now Kevin has uh, broken through on the hardest pitches, and today the plan is for him to finish the last five thirteen pitches. And once he does that, he and uh, Tommy will be at the same height. 
and uh, we're hoping that they'll top out by Wednesday. And to be clear, there is some they need each other. I mean, I think part of Caldwell's partly it's his ethos of wanting to support his teammate, but oh, there's assistance here. Sure. Yeah. I mean, they they're blaming each other, even though it's kind of confusing because we say that uh, Tommy's so far ahead of Kevin, but they're still blaming each other. They're still climbing together, and they're able to move up and down this wall via a system of rigged ropes. And so, really, you know, climbing has progressed because it used to be a matter of I just want to get to the top of this cliff. And in uh, in Yosemite especially, it was all about just finding a way just to get to the top by whatever means necessary. Well, now the adventure is really about how you get there. And that's what Kevin and Tommy are trying to do. They're trying to do this through all three. And um, so it's not just about getting to the top, which, you know, they could do in an hour if they really wanted. It's they want to stay on the wall and free climb each pitch in succession together and stand on top successful together. And this is the part of the podcast, Andrew, where the host asks the guest the big picture, what does it all mean question to telegraph that a little bit. Um, what is it about El Capitan? What is it about this particular route, this particular climb, um, you know, this being one of the most significant climbing achievements ever? If um, Tommy had decided, I want to spend seven years mapping out a route in some other national park or in some other, like, really difficult climb. Like, what is it about this man, this, you know, cliff in this place that combines to make it so significant? Well, I mean, I think the the real answer to that question is that it's not significant. He's not curing cancer. He's not, you know, solving any major problem in the world. And this is like a, a very selfish endeavor in a lot of ways, but... But within this uh, ascent, I think that there's a lot of really important themes to, you know, people in our modern times. And that's, you know, being dedicated to a big goal, being passionate about something and uh, seeing it through, even if it takes, you know, over seven years to do and and you just get beat down and beat down year after year. And I think that that's what has really captivated, you know, sort of general population, you know, and, and... force them to sort of look into a little microcosm that, that is rock climbing. And I think that it also helps because El Capitan is like the center stage in, in the climbing world. So it's a very public cliff. It's right by the road. And, uh, you know, you can just look up and see see these climbers battling the light day after day. It's also produced some stunning images. I mean, holy cow. These guys like <laughs> sleeping and eating and pooping up there, but also aren't <laughs> images of them pooping up there, actually. And the videos are remarkable. They've got a, uh, looks like they've got a video team and photographers documenting all of this. And I think what's also appealing here is that Tommy Caldwell has a pretty interesting backstory. I mean, I was reading this profile from outside from uh, 2002, and you've repeated the story, as have others, that he and some other climbers were kidnapped in the mountains of Kyrgyzstan by rebel fighters, and Caldwell threw one of these guys off of a cliff in order to save the party. Yeah, I think that was the movie uh... Cliffhanger, starring Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> that is a true story, and uh, it was a big part of Tommy's life, and you know, I think it really just speaks to what a hero this guy is. And the fact that, you know, no nobody's really heard of him has always been a source of pride in the climbing world because it's like, wow, we have this guy who's, you know, has done all this incredible rock climbing. He's such a humble person. He never speaks ill of anyone. 
you know, he gets as much enjoyment watching other people succeed as he does himself. And uh, he just couldn't be a better, you know, ambassador for the sport of climbing. He is an indie rock star. Andrew, thank you so much. Um, you said Wednesday could be the day. We'll be following um, your reports on National Geographic. We'll be looking for the videos. Hopefully they'll do something cool at the top, if not cure cancer, maybe at least like raise their fist and triumph. <laughs> we hope so. Thank you so much. All right. Now it is time for after balls, after climbs, after cliffs. Um, I like Yosemite Decimal System. Yeah. Uh, Andrew gave a good explanation for that. I think this podcast has been about a five, five, three, five, three A. We'd, there... have, we'd have to ask the members of the rock climbing section of the Angeles chapter of the Sierra Club, which developed the Yosemite Decimal System. All right. Well, while I wait to get them on the line, uh, Mike Pesca, what is your Yosemite Decimal System? Some of these segments we've discussed are like razor blades, like literally grabbing razor blades, to which 99% of humanity would say, don't do it. But the 1% that does, we laud or put in institutions. So I speak today, not of that, but of the national championship game. When you hear this, it maybe will have been played. It maybe will have been over. And of course, the championship game for so many years has concluded with the awarding of an ergonomically ridiculous egg. We see Jimbo <laughs> Fisher raising the egg. We see Nick Saban raising the egg in our mind's eye. But that Waterford Crystal Egg, technically the American Football Coaches Association trophy, has gone away. It will not be awarded in the championship game. Instead, a trophy that looks a lot like two parentheses around some train tracks while they're trying to evoke football will be awarded. So what happened to the egg? Will it just be put in storage? Oh, no. They have a plan for the egg. And by the way, the egg, the branded sponsor of the egg, is like a walk through the devolution of corporate America. So Pepsi started off as a sponsor. I think they probably have a bigger market cap than the successor, McDonald's. McDonald's then sponsored the egg. Oh, and walk with me as we go down the list of corporations to sponsor the egg. Then Sears became a sponsor. Then Circuit City became a sponsor. Then ADT became a sponsor. And now it seems that Dr. Pepper is sponsoring the trophy, but not really. They just got on board when it was going to be a national championship trophy. Now the Waterford Crystal Egg is being sponsored by Amway. But what about this egg? Who gets the egg? Do they just give it to the winning team afterwards? Not on the field? No. The Waterford Crystal Coaches Trophy will be awarded to the final team that was voted number one in the coaches poll. The coaches poll, by the way, was not at all a factor in determining who got to play in the playoffs. So the coaches are holding on to their poll. The coaches are holding on to their egg. And later, holding on to their egg in a ceremony after the national championship game is played for some reason, Nick Saban of Alabama will be getting the egg. Now, Alabama, when they actually deserve the egg, when they won championships, how did they treat the egg? Well, in 2012, the Waterford Crystal sculpture that was in Alabama's facility, having been won on the field, was shattered. Now, I'll read a series of articles and statements about the shattering of this egg. Officials aren't releasing the name of the man who tripped and stumbled. Cut to a day later. Alabama says Carlton Tinker, parent of Tide long snapper Carson Tinker, tripped on a rug and knocked over the egg. And then when Carlton Tinker was interviewed, no, no, there was no rug. Here's the quote. 
I don't know if I bumped the table when I turned around or if my foot caught on the large tablecloth they had draped and puddled on the floor. What are you doing puddling a tablecloth under a $30,000 egg? Anyway, this egg given by a vote of coaches to a team that is just really bitter will apparently still occur after the national championship game is played with two teams, not including Alabama. Congratulations, you win the egg. I meant to say at the top of the show, we're not talking about the championship game because they had the temerity to schedule it on a Monday. Yeah. How dare they? Yeah. And, and uh, there's, nothing, the there's nothing that can be done. What can we do? Uh, Stefan, what is your Yosemite decimal system? You know what I love, Josh? I loved bowling on ABC's Wide World of Sports. Chris Schenkel. Brooklyn's own Johnny Petraglia. Square Earl Anthony. So it warms my heart for about five seconds anyway until I change the channel. Whenever I stumble across some professional bowlers association bowling on ESPN these days. And if you did some stumbling over the past few weeks on the Geico PBA World Series of Bowling VI, that's six, which concluded yesterday with the PBA World Championship from the new state-of-the-art South Point Bowling Plaza in Las Vegas. Then you may have caught one of the PBA's animal pattern championships. Bowlers among you no doubt are familiar with the animal pattern championships. I was not because, as I mentioned, I haven't paid attention to bowling since Johnny Petraglia was winning the 1977 Bowling Proprietors Association of America U.S. Open, and I was bowling at Bowlerland in the Bronx just over the border from Pelham, not far from Corvettes, with... My friend Kojak, who you might remember from my stickball escapades (laughs) on the call-in show. So when I read on the PBA website that ESPN audiences for the Cheetah, Viper, Chameleon, and Scorpion championships were up over the previous year, I thought maybe the lanes were painted with the images of these animals. But no, the animal patterns are oil patterns on the lanes, lane conditions. Every lane on which you bowl is oiled, and the amount of oil applied and the pattern or shape in which it is applied affects everything speed and spin of the ball, but also the weight and composition of the ball that a bowler chooses. A typical bowling alley oils 38 to 40 feet of the 60-foot lane with almost all of the oil toward the center of the lane, which helps funnel off-target balls back toward the pocket, which makes bowling more fun for you and me. The PBA says that pattern can inflate pro averages by 20 to 50 pins a game, so it mixes up the patterns to force bowlers to adjust. In 2005, the PBA introduced five patterns, Chameleon, Cheetah, Scorpion, Shark, and Viper, and it named tournaments after the patterns. In 2013, the PBA added three more patterns, the Badger, Bear, and Wolf. Each pattern requires a different approach. Here's an excerpt from a PBA video explaining how to attack the scorpion, which applies oil to 43 feet of the lane. Typically, you will want to use a more aggressive bowling ball on this pattern. Power players will start further inside than strokers or tweeners. The break point for all styles of play should be in the track area of the lane. While the scorpion pattern may be the closest to your typical house pattern, it is much flatter, and you may need to use a different ball. You can really divide the world into strokers and tweeners. That's what I always say. And power players. And power players. I don't know what any of that means. Uh, I'm not going to try to figure it out. There are charts and graphs all over the web about these patterns. But I was intrigued by the names. And fortunately, the PBA's website offers details on how each animal name fits its particular pattern. The scorpion is 47 feet of, as you might expect, oily terror. Quote, a scorpion is dangerous and unpredictable, like this pattern. If you can't find the right groove on the lanes, you'll be stung. 
The Viper just 39 feet, but a Viper strikes with multiple angles of attack. This pattern will challenge players to attack the pins from multiple angles in order to score well. The 43-foot chameleon, as you might guess, requires bowlers to adapt. Chameleons change color to outsmart their enemies. To excel on this pattern, bowlers must be versatile in many styles of play. I think my favorite, though, is the shark, also 43 feet. This pattern forces bowlers to play deep inside the center of the lanes like sharks that troll the depths of the ocean. Scary shark. All right. Now, the badger, the bear, and the wolf patterns do not have descriptions on the PBA website. This needs to change. I've got some suggestions. You guys are free to come up with your own. Badger. The badger is fat and dumb and mindlessly digs holes in the ground. If you chuck the ball down the middle and hope for the best, the 52-foot-long badger is the pattern for you. The wolf. The wolf marks its territory by urinating and defecating. It might be just 32 feet in length, but the wolf pattern will have you soiling your bowling slacks in fear. And finally, the bear. Like a hiker who forgets his bell and leaves a bag of gorp outside his tent... The 40-foot-long bear will rip the limbs off of the careless bowler and scatter pieces of his carcass from gutter to gutter. I got one. That's quite violent. Bowling is violent. It's aggressive. It's the bear, man. I got one. Go ahead. The spiny anteater. The spiny anteater is known as being one of two animals that do not have the ability to dream, just as most bowlers must give up their hopes and ambitions and embrace the ten-pin. It has been enacted for the uh, for the next big tournament, the it's Spiny all, Anteater. It's all yours, PBA. Josh, what's your Yosemite decimal system? Who, Stefan, also Mike, also people, um, holds the men's NCAA Division I basketball record for most points scored in a game against a fellow Division I team, Division I on Division I action. I would pause to let you answer, but I've got to move on. We, we're busy people. Uh, for a while, it was Pete Maravich who scored 69 for LSU against Alabama in 1970. But U.S. internationals Kevin Bradshaw broke Pistol Pete's record in 1991, officially scoring 72 points on 23 of 59 shooting against Loyola Marymount in a 186 to 140 loss. This was a 40-minute game. According to a contemporaneous L.A. Times article by Alan Drews, Bradshaw actually scored 73 points, but by the time the scoring discrepancy was discovered, he was already officially in the books with 72. Oh, well. (laughs) (laughs) No way to correct it. Nope. Um, In a 2012 ESPN.com story, U.S. internationals coach Gary Zarecki explained that he wanted his team to play fast and score a lot of points as a recruiting tool. But Bradshaw's high-scoring game was really the only thing that went right for the U.S. international goals that season, as they finished with a 2-26 and record. Not great for recruiting. Actually, that was not even close to being the worst of it. Two weeks before Bradshaw's record game, the school declared bankruptcy. The LA Times reported that U.S. International had $14 million in debt in the U.S. and another $8.5 million in debt across campuses in Mexico City, London, and Nairobi, Perhaps not surprisingly, this debt was related to the school's international expansion. Uh, The the basketball team alone among the school's athletic programs was allowed to finish its season, though they had to practice in a warehouse. Um, In another story, the L.A. Times wrote that Coach Zarecki (laughs) brought in a man with terminal cancer 
to give the team a motivational speech, after which the goal's lost by 40 in front of 223 fans. But it, was, but it was international cancer, and the warehouse housed international goods. Uh, Zarecki's response after this loss, I told my players at least they're not in Saudi Arabia. Love that guy. International reference. I love it. Um, the team did win one game after its bankruptcy. Uh, the LA Times wrote on February 15th, 1991, among the 277 fans who celebrated U.S. International's 98-96 victory Thursday over Cal State Northridge was one woman whose voice cut through, hollering like a knife, oh my God, we won. That's a good fan. Yeah, uh, loyal fan. U.S. International is now a part of Alliant International University, which was created in 2001 and does not have a basketball team. Coach Gary Zarecki is now a PE instructor at De Anza College in Cupertino, California. On RateMyProfessors.com, his reviews <laughs> range from this class is the worst PE class to Coach Z was a coach in the tougher neighborhoods back in the days and got some of the really good basketball players where they are today. Come and play basketball in his class because it's pretty fun. ESPN.com did a write-up on Bradshaw in 2012. He started out playing at Bethune-Cookman before dropping out and joined the Navy. He played on an all-armed forces team with David Robinson. He then went back to college at U.S. International when he was in his mid-20s. He never got an NBA tryout. He did play in Israel for 12 years, where he once uh, scored 101 points in a game. He is the subject of a documentary called Shooting for Home, which focuses on how he overcame a bunch of dark periods in his life including thoughts of suicide and has now become a happy family man. He is now coaching at San Diego's King Chavez Community High School, which lost its most recent game by the score of 91 to 11. Uh, at that pace, they will match their coach's single game scoring record after five and a half more games. We love your feedback on what we talked about today. Before, before you say that, can yes, I just ask, Mike. why would having some guy who takes all the shots be a good recruiting tool? Because every recruit would be like, well, I would be the best player, so I would get all the shots. Oh, I see. I thought he was <laughs> We get to there. practice in a warehouse, and they have people yeah. with terminal cancer come talk to us? Right, yeah. yeah. At least he didn't <laughs> say, at least you guys don't have terminal cancer after that game. Yeah. Coach Zarecki, motivational speaker. Um, you can email us, resuming the credits. At hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to hangup and listen in iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. And when you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of hangup and listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangup and listen. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.